Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 153. This show is entitled The Best Aussie Inventions of All Time. Our first article this week comes from the www.smithsonianmag.com website and it's to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the introduction of the Mac computer which occurred this week. They nitpicked the hardware but reviewers appreciated the groundbreaking features that would redefine the personal computer. What reviewers said about the first Mac when it debuted 30 years ago And this is an article by Joseph Stromberg. 30 years ago on January 24, 1984, a 28-year-old Steve Jobs appeared on stage in a tuxedo to introduce a new Apple computer that had been in the works for years. The Macintosh. Two days earlier, during the third quarter of Super Bowl XVIII, Apple aired a commercial that brought already high expectations for the Mac to a fever pitch. In the ad, a nameless heroine runs through a dystopian setting where a face projected onto an enormous screen commands a room full of conformists to obey. Evading police in right gear, the heroine smashes the screen with a giant hammer, freeing the audience. The message? IBM was 1984's Big Brother, and Mac was the audacious liberator. Upon stage, after unzipping the 17-pound computer from a carrying case, plugging it in and turning it on, Jobs showed a feverishly cheering audience screenshots of killer applications like MacWrite and MacPaint. 
The device, designed around a user-friendly graphical user interface and mouse that debuted in the previous Lisa computer, was remarkably intuitive for non-experts, allowing them to use the mouse to select programs they wanted to run, rather than type in code. On the whole, reviewers seem to have been impressed by the features of the $2,495 machine. But when the New York Times' Eric Sandberg Dimmond first sat down at the computer, he was less than thrilled with the screen size. He wrote, The first thing to take me by surprise as I sat down at the Macintosh was not the mouse pointer used to move the cursor on the screen, which everyone has been expecting, but the size of the screen itself. With a scant 9-inch diagonal, it presents a diminutive 5 by 7 viewing image. My personal dislike for small screens made me chalk up an immediate minus on the Max scorecard. At the time, the Max main rival for the home user market was the IBM PC Junior, which had a 14-inch monitor and cost $1,269. Sandberg Dimmitt also nitpicked other aspects of the Mac's hardware. The keyboard didn't include a number pad, and the screen was black and white. To his credit though, he appreciated that these concerns were dwarfed by the computer's unprecedented graphic resolution, intuitive operating system and innovative mouse. A smaller monitor didn't matter because the computer was so much easier to use. The Mac display makes all the other personal computer screens look like distorted rejects from a cubist art school, he wrote. The fundamental difference between the Mac and other personal computers is that the Macintosh is visually oriented rather than word-oriented. In a glowing review for the Los Angeles Times, Larry Magrid expressed amazement over many of the metaphor and skeuomorphic features that would come to define the personal computer, surrounded by quotation marks that are remarkably quaint today. Once you've set up your machine, you insert the main system disk, turn on the power, and in a minute you are presented with the introductory screen. Apple calls it your desktop. What you see on your screen looks a lot like what you might find on a desk, he wrote. His analysis of the user-friendly visual interface, which was quickly copied by Microsoft and soon spread to virtually every personal computer, sounds strikingly like the awe we expressed after first seeing the iPhone's intuitive touchscreen-controlled operating system in 2007. It uses a handheld mouse a small pointing device which enables the user to select programs and move data from one part of the screen to another, Magrid wrote. When this process was described to me, it sounded cumbersome, especially since I'm already comfortable with using a keyboard. But the mouse is so much more intuitive. As infants, we learn to move objects around our playpens. Using a mouse is an extension of that skill. Writing in Byte magazine, Greg Williams comprehensively broke down the machine's specs and groundbreaking capabilities, and made a prediction about the Mac's future that was prescient, but also mistaken. It will be imitated, but not copied, he wrote. 
To some people, Apple will be as synonymous with the phrase personal computer as IBM is synonymous with computer. Williams was correct in anticipating how profoundly the Mac's features would appeal to the casual computer user, but he was wrong in that those capabilities wouldn't be thoroughly copied by Microsoft Windows, which could run on IBM and virtually every other brand of computer besides Mac. Eventually, in fact, Windows computers so thoroughly dominated the home user market that Williams' prediction was inverted. Windows became synonymous with PC, the exact opposite of Mac. Towards the end of World War II, word got through that certain people in occupied territories were eating a near-starvation diet. American researchers wanted to study the effects of starvation, so they recruited volunteers and starved them some more. From the io9.com website, an article by Esther Inglis Arkell. The US wartime experiment that starved men almost to death. The Minnesota starvation experiment pretty much lived up to its name. It was an early experiment in nutrition prompted by news about the conditions in Europe during World War II. The full horror of concentration camps was still to come. But word came in that people in war-torn territories were living on severely restricted diets. Everyone knew that things were going to get worse before they get better, and concerned researchers wanted to find out the effects of starvation and how to rehabilitate a severely starved person. In November of 1944, at the University of Minnesota, a study began on the effects of starvation. From a pool of 400 volunteers, 36 men were chosen. All were between 22 and 33, and all were in good health. They were told that the experiment would go through four phases. For three months, they would eat a specific number of calories, so that researchers could get them to a healthy weight and get a baseline for their diet. They were kept active, and the diet they were given was 3,200 calories. Once they'd gotten up to their fighting weight, their caloric intake was to be halved. They'd take in 1,560 calories a day, every day, and no more. They'd have a diet comparable to the food people in Europe would have available. Root vegetables and starches, with the occasional meat or jello. The goal of the diet was to make the men lose a little over 2 pounds a week, and 25% of their body weight in 6 months. After six months, they'd go through a three-month rehabilitative phase where they would be allowed more food. They'd be divided into many groups, with different groups given different amounts of calories and different amounts of protein, fat and vitamins. Finally, they'd be allowed eight weeks of eating whatever they wanted. 
During this time they were kept in dormitories on campus, given regular blood tests, endurance tests, mental tests and many other kinds of tests. They were given administrative work in the lab and allowed to attend classes at the university. Most of all they were watched. For the tests to be successful, the researchers had to be sure that the participants weren't cheating. The rehabilitative diet did not remain of general interest to subsequent generations, although it did help scientists understand that people who had been starved needed to be overfed, rather than just fed, to help them rebuild their bodies. It is the effects that retain lasting fascination for scientists and for the public. At first the participants merely complained of hunger, of an inability to concentrate and of poor judgement. If the men didn't lose enough weight, their rations were reduced, meaning some got more food than others. They all ate together, watching who got what. Unsurprisingly, resentment sprang up and there were a lot of fights in the dorms. Then came extreme depression. Several members were hospitalised for psychiatric problems. Some mutilated themselves. One man amputated three fingers with a hatchet, although he said later he didn't know whether he'd done it on purpose or was just not thinking clearly. Considering he had injured his fingers once before, letting a car fall on them, the researchers thought the new injury was at least semi-deliberate, released him from the experiment and put him in psychiatric care. Then came weakness. When one man cheated on the diet, the researchers demanded the rest of the men go everywhere with a buddy. Years later, one of the participants said he was grateful for the buddy system since he could no longer open heavy doors by himself. The men lost their hair, became dizzy, felt cold all the time, and their muscles ached. Many dropped out of classes. Scientists noted that their resting heart rate and breath rate also fell. The starving body was trying to use up as few calories as possible. For a while, they were allowed gum. They chewed up to 40 packs every day until the researchers disallowed gum chewing. They became obsessed with what food they did have, holding it in their mouths and trying to stretch out mealtimes. One man said that what bothered him more than anything was the fact that food became the central point in his life. He no longer cared about anything but food. He watched movies for the eating scenes and read magazines for the food ads. Another man said he had begun hating people who were able to go home and have a good dinner. Food became their curse and obsession. This was unsurprising as a good portion of the men overshot the projected goal of a 25% loss of body weight. Many men were down to 99 or 100 pounds. During the three-month rehabilitation period, different groups of men were supposed to receive different amounts of food. Researchers quickly scrapped that idea after the lower calorie diet men didn't show signs of recovery. Some even lost weight after their calorie intake was increased. The lack of calories had caused some of the men's legs to swell with water and a calorie infusion allowed them to shed the excess liquid. Despite the sincere efforts of the researchers, almost no men felt recovered after just three months. On the day they were allowed to eat again, 
quite a few over eight and got sick. One had his stomach pumped. Even getting back to their earlier weight didn't help. They packed on pounds well beyond that. Some said they couldn't stop obsessively eating for a year. There was never enough food for them. Today the results of the Minnesota Starvation Study are mostly of note to people who study eating disorders. Many of the behaviours the starving men displayed, such as diluting food with water to make it look more filling, or over-chewing their food to stretch out mealtimes, are also displayed by people suffering from anorexia. The men's subsequent relentless feeding is similar to binge eating. Although they made themselves sick physically, they couldn't get enough food to make them feel satisfied. When contacted years later, many of the men said the experiment was the toughest thing they had ever done, but were happy to have participated and said they would do it again. Would anyone here even volunteer once? The concept of bachelor pads isn't unique to humans. Male bowerbirds are amazing architects, but they reserve their skills for just one purpose – finding a mate. They construct such elaborate and dazzling nests to impress females, perhaps they could teach our men a thing or two about home decor. From the www.oddityscentral.com website an article by Sumitra. Romantic bowerbird builds intricate structures to seduce females. Male bowerbirds use embellishments such as coins, nails, leaves, shells, seeds, flowers and live insects to weave their nests called bowers. Bowers are U-shaped nests built with twigs and grass and carpeted with moss. Each bower is an architectural marvel that stretches out five or six yards across, complete with a thatched roof and supporting pillars. Blue is a very important colour in the construction process. Male bowerbirds use several blue objects – berries, flowers, bottle caps and string – to attract prospective mates. Research has proven that females are attracted to bowers with the most number of blue decorations. Because blue objects are rare in a bowerbird's environment, 
A male who is able to acquire them and protect them is deemed superior. But competition is tough, and weaving the fanciest nest doesn't guarantee finding a mate. So the males also prepare an elaborate dance as a part of the courtship ritual. The frenetic physical display is dubbed the buzz wing flip. It involves fluffing up feathers, buzzing vocalisations and a lot of running back and forth. The maniacal dance is performed up to four times for the female bowerbird's viewing pleasure. Using video cameras, researchers have determined a three-stage courtship process. In the first stage, females visit the bowers when the male is absent. At this stage, males with asymmetric or badly constructed bowers, or with a haphazard arrangement of blue items, are generally disqualified. Good decorating skills correlate with high energy. In stage two, females return to the bowers that they found impressive. This time the males are present too. They perform the buzz wing flip. It's important for the dance to go well because physical display is believed to be the best indicator of male quality. While blue ornaments can always be stolen, the buzz wing flip cannot be faked. According to Seth Coleman, a doctoral candidate of behavioural ecology at the University of Maryland, only males in top physical condition are able to produce vigorous performances, something that sick or weak males cannot do. Once the females have made a second round of observations, they leave for a week to build their own nests. They return for stage three. A review of on-call performances from only the most promising candidates. When she has chosen her mate, the female bowerbird indicates her satisfaction to the male with a soft cooing. Mating happens within a few seconds time, yet another generation of architects will soon be born. Just like in humans, the female bowerbird's taste in males seems to improve with age. Researchers have observed that younger females who have no prior mating experience or just a single mating are startled by the buzz wing flip routine. Their retreat is so hasty, often leaping up and out of the bower, that they can't possibly have any time to assess the male, says Coleman. Younger females seem to choose males using different indicators, the blue ornaments. The first stage is the end of the story for them. They can't really tolerate the subsequent stages. But females with three plus years of experience go with the physical displays as well. It's amazing the amount of dedication that bowerbirds have towards building their nests. Their extravagant exhibitions are in part a result of females being single mothers who do not need males to raise their young. Bowerbirds are also rather plain looking, which the colourful displays seem to make up for. So the males dedicate their lives towards the collection and arrangement of treasures for their prospective mates. Now if only more human males could have such passion for interior decoration. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info, Click on the link to episode 153 and then on the link to this article 
There are a couple of photographs and a video of the bowerbirds in action. I've actually seen these birds, especially the satin bowerbird, the one that collects the blue objects in action, in the forests not far from where we live here in Brisbane, Australia. And they are really quite amazing things to see. So if you're interested, the video looks quite good, goes for four minutes, and the photographs are quite good as well. January the 26th every year is Australia's National Day, Australia Day, which was only two days ago from making this podcast. So in order to celebrate Australia Day this year, I'm doing an article by Michelle Starr from the m.cnet.com.au website. The best Aussie inventions of all time. Australians are an inventive lot and have contributed amazing innovations and ideas that impact lives around the world every day. Here are some of the top inventions that you may or may not know came from our very own sunburnt country. eighteen fifty four The Refrigerator There's one in nearly every kitchen, at least in the Western world, but the ubiquitous fridge was originally conceived in Geelong, Victoria, in the 1850s by James Harrison. His patented ether liquid vapour compression system, whereby gas was passed through a compressor to be cooled and liquefied, and then circulated through refrigeration coils, is still the most widely used refrigeration system today, not just in fridges, but air conditioners in homes and offices around the world. 1874. Underwater Torpedo Melbourne watchmaker and mechanical engineer Lewis Brennan invented the underwater torpedo at just 22 years of age. The torpedo had two propellers, driven by two counter-rotating screws that were in turn driven by the unwinding motion of two fine wires. The torpedo was also steered by these wires, which connected back to a steam engine for onshore or shipboard operation. 1889. The Electric Drill Melbourne City Council's first electrical engineer, Arthur James Arnault, patented the world's first electric drill in 1889. It wasn't the nifty handyman-sized version we have today, though. Arnault's drill was designed primarily for excavation of oil and coal. 1894. Powered Flight After discovering that curved surfaces are more aerodynamic than flat ones, 
Lawrence Hargrave invented the box kite, the cellular construction of which was more stable than the previous monoplanes. On the 12th of November 1894, he strapped four box kites together with a compressed air engine, which was also his own invention, tethered it to the ground with piano wire and managed to fly the short five metres that changed aviation history. 1902, the notepad. You know those ideas that seem small, but when you think about it, have enormous repercussions? J.A. Birchall of Tasmanian stationery company Birchall was the first person to take loose sheets of paper, cut them in half, back them with cardboard and glue the top edge. He sold them as the Silver City writing tablets and the idea went on to give rise to none other than the humble paperback book binding, thus enabling the booming new genre of pulp novels. 1906, the feature film. The first ever full feature film was made by Australians and shot and shown in Australia. The story of the Kelly Gang was written and directed by Charles Tate and co-starred his wife, children and brothers. It ran to just over 60 minutes and cost only a thousand pounds to make. It was deemed a commercial success, bringing in around 25,000 pounds to its four producers. 1906, the surf life-saving reel, 1912, the surf ski, and 1927, speedos. Australia has a beach culture like no other country, so it's unsurprising that many of our innovations revolve around it. On the 23rd of December 1906, surfer Lester Ormsby demonstrated the reel to which a rescuer could be harnessed in order to battle dangerous surf more safely. In 1912, Jack and Harry McLaren invented the surf ski, a kind of lightweight one-man kayak for quick and efficient surf navigation. In 1927, Australian underwear manufacturer Speedo introduced its first line of racing swimwear. Declared somewhat racy at the time, but positively tame compared to the budgie smugglers that would come later. One of the first people rescued using the surf life-saving reel was a nine-year-old boy on January 2nd, 1907. Later on, he himself would become one of the leading pioneers in the field of aviation. His name was Charles Kingsford Smith. And to those of you who are not quite sure what I mean by the term budgie smugglers, here is the definition from the UrbanDictionary.com website. Budgie smugglers. Australian slang term for men's tight-fitting speedo-style swimwear. The lump in the front apparently resembles a budgie when it is stuffed down the front of someone's shorts. Ah, those crazy Aussies. And by budgie, of course, we mean a budgerigar parrot. 1911. The Tank. In 1911, Adelaide-born Lancelot Eldon de Mole was struck with the idea for an armoured vehicle that ran on treads. He sent sketches and descriptions of his design to the British War Office, only to be informed in June 1913 
that his idea had been rejected. When in 1916 an inferior, in DeMol's opinion, tank was introduced, the engineer realised that he had been passed over. A British Royal Commission later said that DeMol's design had made and reduced to practical shape. As far back as the year 1912, a brilliant invention which anticipated and in some respects surpassed that actually put into use in the year 1916, but he was never formally acknowledged as the tank's inventor. 1911, the rotary clothes hoist, and 1948, the hills hoist. Everyone thinks of the hills hoist when they think of the Australian rotary clothes hoist. But the first rotary hoist was actually patented by Melbourne resident Gilbert Toyne in 1911. He was to patent three more designs by 1926. It was his all-metal clothes hoist, which enclosed a wheel and pinion winding mechanism that formed the basis for other designs, including that of Lance Hill, who patented the exact same design in 1948 after Toyne's patent had expired. 1928. The Pacemaker Aberdeen doctor J.A. McWilliam was the first to note that electricity could be used to stimulate the human heart in the 1880s. But the first doctors to create an apparatus for doing so were Dr. Mark C. Lidwell of the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital of Sydney and physicist Edgar H. Booth of the University of Sydney. In 1926, they devised a portable apparatus that plugged into an electrical outlet. On one pole was a pad soaked in salt water to be applied to the patient's skin. The other was a long needle that was to be plunged into the patient's heart. Its first recorded success was at the Crown Street Women's Hospital in Sydney, where it was used to revive a stillborn infant in 1928. An American doctor by the name of Albert Hyman was formally credited as the device's first inventor. However, his device didn't arrive on the scene until 1932. The oversight is usually accredited to the fact that Hyman named the pacemaker and that he referred to the Australian inventor as Gould rather than his actual name, Lidwell. Nineteen thirty four The Ford Coupe Utility or the Ute. Hitting the market in nineteen thirty four, the Ford Coupe Utility was born of a letter, so the legend goes, written in nineteen thirty two to the company by a farmer's wife who had had enough of travelling to church in a farm truck. Why don't you build people like us a vehicle to go to church in on a Sunday? and which can carry our pigs to market on Mondays, she inquired. The project was handed to Ford Australia's design department. 22-year-old Ford Geelong engineer Lewis Brandt, who following an idea by plant superintendent Slim Westman, started sketching a vehicle consisting of half a car up front and a flatbed tray in the back. Bant went on to remain with Ford until his retirement in 1976. 1939. The Medical Application of Penicillin 
We debated whether or not to include this one since many scientists have worked on developing the medical application of penicillin. But a team of scientists at the University of Oxford in the UK were absolutely instrumental and they were led by one Howard Florey, an Australian scientist living and working in the UK and whose face appeared on our old paper $50 note. Penicillin, as you may already know, was discovered by the Scottish scientist Alexander Fleming in 1928. It wasn't applied medically until 1930, when Cecil George Payne attempted to use it to cure psychosis vulgaris. He failed, but later that year went on to successfully cure four patients of conjunctivitis. It was Flory and his team, though, who effectively demonstrated that the antibiotic was effective at killing bacteria within a living creature. Their human tests failed because they hadn't used enough, but it worked quite nicely on mice. Three years later, penicillin was used to cure a dying patient in the US. 1943. The Splayed. At first glance there appears to be little difference between a splade and a spork. Look a little closer and you'll see that the splade's sides have been straightened, making a better edge for cutting soft foods. Legend has it that inventor William MacArthur was inspired to create a single, easy-to-use eating utensil after seeing a photograph of ladies at a party awkwardly trying to juggle their meals and cutlery. 1952, the Atomic Absorption Spectrophotometer. Sir Alan Walsh and his team at the CSIRO Division of Chemical Physics were responsible for the creation of the Atomic Absorption Spectrophotometer in the 1950s. It analyzes samples by examining how they absorb light when in gas form to determine how much metal is present in said sample. It is generally used to test the metal levels in water and soil samples. 1958, the black box flight recorder. Everyone knows about black box flight recorders, an audio recorder in a super strong casing that records the conversation of the pilots in a plane's cockpit. If the plane comes down, salvage teams can listen to the recording to find out what went astray and apply prevention measures if possible. It was invented by chemist Dave Warren, who one day thought to himself, what if the pilots could tell us themselves? His device is now installed into every commercial plane in the world. Oh, and it's actually orange, not black. 1961, ultrasound. The first ultrasound scanner was built in 1961 at the Ultrasonics Institute of the Department of Health by George Kossoff and Dave Robinson. The ultrasound scanner uses sounds beyond the range of human hearing to take an image using echolocation. That is the way in which the sound bounces off an object to reveal the object's shape and location. It has become an indispensable medical tool. 1965. Boxed wine. Boxed wine, although it is seen as pretty cheap and nasty, was pretty innovative back in the 1960s. 
It was invented by a South Australian winemaker by the name of Thomas Angove, who ran a family winery. The design was patented in 1965. It consisted of a polythene bag that was packaged in a corrugated box. Carusas had to snip off a corner of the bag, sealing it back up with a special peg when they were done drinking. Two years later, Penfold Wines came up with the tap and decades of really bad wine headache history was made. So next time you tap a cask of goon, raise a glass for old Angove. The 1970s, permaculture. Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, later to become known as the fathers of permaculture, rigorously worked to develop a sustainable method of farming. Modelled on the relationships and patterns found in natural ecologies, the purpose of permaculture is a sustainable and harmonious use of land and resources, putting back what you take out. The end result is a higher level of sustainability within communities, lessening the reliance on industrialisation. 1972. The Power Board. With the rise of home electronics, refrigerators, TV sets, kitchen appliances, power tools, the need for power points increased exponentially. In today's homes, they've become indispensable. They were invented way back in 1972 by Frank Bannigan, who was then the managing director of Cambrook. Unfortunately for Bannigan, Cambrook was less interested in securing a patent for the design than rushing the product to market. 1979, the digital sampler. Yes folks, if you are one of those people who hate electronic music, you only have Australia to blame. Actually, technically, you have Fairlight's Peter Vogel and Kim Ryrie who created the first ether synthesizer, the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument Digital Sampler. These babies retailed for £18,000 a pop, which practically guaranteed that it was going to show up on musical stages all around the world. Among the first buyers were Peter Gabriel, Ivor Davies and Kate Bush. 1978, the bionic ear. Otherwise known as the hearing aid, the bionic ear or cochlear implant is a small device fitted into the ear to amplify sound for the hard of hearing. Development began under Professor Graham Clark at the University of Melbourne in 1970 and the first patient was fitted in 1978. The hearing aid uses an external microphone, speech processor and transmitter which transmits the sound to a receiver inside the ear. This receiver then converts the signals into electricity and sends them to electrodes attached to the cochlea to be sent to the brain through the auditory nerve system. 1980, the dual flush toilet. A lot of water gets used in an average household and it turned out that a lot of water was being wasted by the most basic piece of plumbing, the humble loo. In 1980, Bruce Thompson of Coroma came up with a system that did away with the one-volume-fits-all flushing-needs approach. It is claimed that the dual-flush toilet can save up to 67% of a household's toilet water usage, or about 32,000 litres a year. 1984, 
the baby safety capsule. New laws in the 1970s made seatbelts compulsory in Australia, but while this protected adults to an extent, infants were still at a high risk. The makers of the safe and sound child restraint, Rainsfords, came up with the baby safety capsule, in which a baby can be safely cradled in a secure bassinet. A bubble of air between the bassinet and its base creates a cushion of air and a release mechanism allows the bassinet to rotate in the event of a crash. The 1990s. Spray-on skin. Plastic surgeon Dr Fiona Wood was frustrated at treating Burns victims. The faster they can be treated, the less chance of scarring. But sheets of skin tissue take 14 to 21 days to grow. Wood also noticed that skin sheets with holes healed faster than the sheets that had been more fully meshed. And so she conceived the idea of a spray skin. Made from the patient's own skin cells, the spray was used to impressive effect after the Bali bombings. But clinical trials are ongoing. 1992, Wi-Fi. It's hotly contested where Wi-Fi got its beginnings, but one thing is certain, Australia's CSIRO holds the patent, and in the last couple of years has won court cases over the dispute. Researcher John O'Sullivan, recipient of the Prime Minister's Prize for Science in 2009, actually claims to have come up with the basis for Wi-Fi in 1977, while searching for exploding black holes. O'Sullivan's technology cleans up radio waves and is included in the patents for 802.11a, 802.11g and 802.11n. 1996 Anti-Flu Medication Relenza, an inhalant flu medication, is made using Zanmavir, a drug discovered and developed by a team of scientists led by Mark von Itstein at the Victorian College of Pharmacy, Monash University. The drug works by blocking the flu virus inside its host cell so that it is unable to escape and infect other cells. 2004 Stop Shot Blast Glass. Stop Shot by Sydney inventor Peter Stevenson is different from the ballistic resistant glass that came before. It's not just one sheet of very thick glass. Stevenson, who worked in window tinting, noticed that tinted glass was harder to break and devised a strengthening polymer to lay over glass. This polymer, according to Stevenson, significantly raises the tensile strength of the glass. Additionally, two sheets of the polymer-treated glass are placed in a frame, leaving a pocket of air between the layers for shockwave absorption. The result is a window that can withstand bullets and the blast of a five-ton bomb without falling out of the frame. Stevenson's customers include most of Australia's banks, the New South Wales Police, the Australian Defence Force, Qantas and various government departments. 2003, Google Maps. Google Maps actually began as a C++ program designed at Sydney-based Where2 Technologies. The project was the brainchild of two brothers, Lars and Jens Rasmussen, who originally intended the product as a downloadable app. 
However, when the company needed venture capital, they pitched the program to Google as a web-based application. Google bought Where2 Technologies in 2004, and Google Maps was announced in 2005. And finally, 2006, the cervical cancer vaccine. The development of the HPV-16 vaccine, Gardasil, which aims to ultimately prevent cervical cancer in women by targeting the associated human papillomavirus, is hotly contested. One thing is for certain, though, and that is that several different groups were absolutely instrumental in Gardasil's creation. Professor Ian Fraser and his colleague, the late Dr Jian Zhu, started their work on the vaccine at the University of Queensland in 1991. While other research facilities also made contributions and contested the patent, Professor Fraser was awarded global rights to the fundamental science in 2007. Well, there you go, all those inventions invented by Aussies. Not bad for a country of only 23 million people. And from the www.worddetective.com Hat Trick Dear Word Detective, I've been watching the Olympics up here in Canada and I keep hearing about hat tricks. One of the Canadian women scored three goals in an important soccer match. Hat Trick Another more prominent athlete won three gold medals. Again, a hat trick. So I understand that it refers to an individual doing three of something. But what does it have to do with hats? And this is by Harold Russell. Hmm. Is it safe? Is it safe? I know I sound like the evil Nazi dentist in Marathon Man, but I've been hiding from the Olympics for, gosh, must be a couple of months now. I haven't looked at the TV news or most of the internet at all, but the few headlines that managed to sneak through my blindfold, metaphorical of course, tended to indicate that the Olympics had taken up permanent residence, like the second cousin who crashes on your couch for a few weeks in July and is somehow still there on New Year's Eve. So is it over? What year is it? Speaking of years, I just checked and it turns out that the last time I answered a question about hat trick was way back in 1997, which was before Facebook or Twitter or any of the other things I wish it was still before so we could stop them. The slightly mortifying aspect of the 15 years since I wrote that column is that I still don't entirely understand the particulars of the term's origins. I know when and where it first appeared, 
but the exact situation it described remains as opaque to me today as it was then. You'll understand in a moment. Hat-trick is a term used in sports to describe a single player or athlete scoring three goals, or whatever, in one game or match. So if I were to score three goals in quick succession in a hockey game, after first learning to skate in my case, that would be hailed by the gang in the broadcast booth as a hat-trick. The term is also used by extension for a threefold success in nearly any other activity, from selling three used cars in one afternoon to getting yourself arrested three times in a row for mopery in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is very strict about mopery. Don't ask. The term hat-trick first appeared in Britain in the late 19th century and it comes from the game of cricket, which is where things get a little bit sticky, explanation-wise, because I have never understood cricket. But according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, a hat-trick means the feat of a bowler who takes three wickets by three successive balls originally considered to entitle him to be presented by his club with a new hat or some equivalent. I suppose a really good player would have tried to rent a room to store all those nifty hats. That's probably why they eventually switched to rewarding athletic success with buckets of money. Hat tricks are noted in other sports as well, most notably horse racing, where a hat trick consists of a single jockey winning three races in one day. In hockey, there are two kinds of hat tricks, the simple sort being one player scoring three goals in one game. When a hockey player scores three goals in succession with no other scores interrupting, it's called a natural hat trick. There's also a hat trick in baseball, which consists of a player hitting a single, a double, a triple and a home run, all in one game. This sort of hat-trick is, unsurprisingly, quite rare, so it would be slightly tacky on such an occasion to point out that hat-trick in this sense describes four, not three, events. I should probably note just for the record that hat-trick can also mean, according to the OED, any trick with a hat, for example, one performed by a conjurer. I'm hoping there's a special term for a magician who manages to produce three rabbits from the same hat. On such an occasion, of course, a new hat would probably be very welcome. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. And remember, if you want to find out what's happening in the podcast, go to our Facebook page. The link is on the show notes or it's www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. There hasn't been an Origins podcast for quite a while, as those of you who have visited the Facebook page, you will know that I'm in the process of moving house. We sold our other home in November and have been staying with a friend ever since. 
We finally found a home to our liking and we move in on the 10th of February and hopefully I can set myself up in a studio and do a bit more regular recording than I've been doing lately. Also a big thank you to Sean Yarnell and Sky Norton for making a donation to the podcasts. These two lovely people have set it up as a monthly subscription through PayPal, so it's an ongoing donation, which is very, very greatly appreciated, as it does help to keep down the costs of producing the show. Thank you, Sean and Sky. Irving Finkel, a British museum curator and author of The Ark Before Noah, has found a 4,000-year-old tablet that describes the materials and measurements for building Noah's Ark. From the www.theepochtimes.com website, Noah's Ark blueprints have been found, 4,000-year-old detailed instructions. And there's a little slideshow associated with this as well. If you visit the show notes, you can see these. It also describes the Ark in a way never before conceived by archaeologists, as round. Finkel writes in a museum blog post on his discovery. Douglas Simmons had approached him at the museum with a tablet given to him by his father. His father had picked up some artefacts from Egypt and China after the war in the late 1940s. The tablet turned out to be one in a million, said Finkel. Dating from 1750 BC, it tells the Babylonian story of the flood. The Babylonian story and its similarities to the story recounted in the book of Genesis were already known. But this table has startling new contents, Finkel said. He lists off some of the materials a god told the Babylonian Noah to use for his ark. Quantities of palm fibre rope, wooden ribs and bathfuls of hot bitumen to waterproof the finished vessel. The amount of rope prescribed, stretched out in a line, would reach from London to Edinburgh. The ark would have had an area of about 2.2 miles squared about the size of one and a half football fields, with walls 20 feet high. The aspect of the description that most stunned Finkel, however, is that the ark was round. He said, to my knowledge, no one has ever thought of that possibility. Finkel told the Associated Press that the tablet is one of the most important human documents ever discovered. And from the gizmodo.com website, an article by Andrew Tarantola. This transforming medieval text is actually six books in one. And if you visit the show notes, there's a little animation showing you how it works. With the literacy rate hovering around an estimated 5-10% to 10% of the population during the Middle Ages... Only a select few of society's upper echelons and religious castes had use for books. So, who would have had use for a sextuplet of stories bound by a single multi-hinged cover like this? 
some seriously busy scholar. Known as a do-si-do or back-to-back book, this collection is believed to have been bound in the latter part of the 16th century and includes devotional texts such as Martin Luther's Decliner Catechismus, which had been printed in Germany between the 1550s and 1570s. The book is currently owned by the National Swedish Library and resides in Stockholm, among the Royal Library's archives. Only for advanced readers. Advanced readers with low attention spans. Anyway, if you want to have a look at the book, come and visit the show notes and the little graphic will show you how the hinges worked. Quite interesting, really. Quite a marvellous little construction. From the www.todayifoundout.com website. The woman who survived all three disasters aboard the sister ships, the Titanic, Britannic and Olympic. And this is an article by Emily Upton. Violet Jessup enjoyed incredible luck from a young age. Born in 1887 in Argentina to Irish immigrants, She contracted tuberculosis as a young child and was given just a few months to live. Somehow, she managed to fight the disease and went on to live a long, healthy life. When her father passed away, her mother moved the family to Britain where she took a job as a stewardess on a ship. While her mother was working, Violet attended a convent school. Unfortunately, her mother became ill And to provide for her siblings, Violet decided to follow in her mother's footsteps and become a ship's stewardess herself. The first in a long line of struggles for Violet was finding a ship that would take her. She was just 21 years old at the time and most women working as stewardesses in the early 1900s were middle-aged. Employers believed that her youth and good looks would be a disadvantage to her causing problems with the crew and passengers. Over the course of her career, she did get at least three marriage proposals whilst working on various ships, one from an incredibly wealthy first-class passenger. Eventually, Violet solved the problem by making herself look frumpy with old clothes and no makeup, and experienced more successful interviews after this. After a brief stint aboard the Orinoco, a Royal Mail Line steamer in 1908, she was hired by the White Star Line. Violet started out on the line's Majestic and switching to the Olympic in 1910. Despite the long hours and minimal pay, £2.10 every month or about £200 today, she enjoyed working aboard the massive ship. She had initially had some concerns about the rough weather conditions while travelling across the Atlantic, but she reportedly liked that the Americans treated her more like a person while she served them. It was just one year later when the trouble started. In 1911, the Olympic collided with the HMS Hawk, 
a ship designed to sink ships by ramming them. Both ships sustained considerable damage, including the Olympic having its hull breached below the waterline, but miraculously didn't sink. They were able to make it back to port, and Violet disembarked without being harmed. A couple of years later, the White Star Line was looking for crew to cater to the VIPs aboard the unsinkable ship, the Titanic. It took a while for her friends and family to convince her that it would be a wonderful experience, but Violet eventually decided to take a job on board the ship. As you already know, the Titanic struck an iceberg and sunk, killing more than 1,500 people. Violet was able to escape the disaster on Lifeboat 16. In her memoir she recalls, I was ordered up on deck. Calmly, passengers strolled about. I stood at the bulkhead with the other stewardesses, watching the women cling to their husbands before being put into the boats with their children. Sometime after, a ship's officer ordered us into the boat, first to show some women it was safe. As she was jumping into the lifeboat, she was handed a baby to care for. When they were rescued by the Carpathia, the baby's mother, or at least Jessop thought it must be, found her and whisked the baby away, literally grabbing the baby out of Jessop's arms and running off. Once again, Violet lived to sail another day, although she did later state the first thing she missed after the Titanic sank was her toothbrush that she'd left on board. You'd think she'd stop getting on ships at this point, or at least ships of the Olympic class, but not Violet. In the lead-up to World War I, she decided to serve as a nurse on board the Titanic's other sister ship, Britannic, which was operating in the Aegean Sea. Given her track record, you can probably guess what happened next. The Britannic ran into a mine that had been planted by a German U-boat. The ship sustained substantial damage, and quickly started sinking. This time Violet wasn't lucky enough to jump into a lifeboat as the ship was sinking too fast. Instead, she jumped overboard. In her own words, I leapt into the deep water, but was sucked under the ship's keel, which struck my head. I escaped, but years later, when I went to my doctor because of a lot of headaches, I discovered I had once sustained a fracture of the skull. She joked that she only survived because of her thick hair, which cushioned the blow. She also stated this time she remembered to grab her toothbrush before evacuating, unlike with the Titanic. Even this latest disaster wasn't enough to deter Violet. After the war, ships were becoming more and more popular form of transport. Even cruise ships were starting to emerge. Violet left the White Star Line for the Red Star Line, and worked on a ship doing world cruises for several years. Luckily for Violet and everyone travelling on the ships, she was aboard later, no such vessel she worked on ever sustained significant damage again. She did take a clerical job for a while after World War II, but went back to working on Royal Mail ships for a few years before she retired at the age of 61. The rest of her life was spent gardening and raising chickens. She died in 1971 of congestive heart failure at the ripe old age of 84. And a few bonus facts to go with this story. 
Violet didn't accept that marriage proposal from the wealthy first-class passenger. She was married at one point, but only for about six months and never had any children. She met her first love on board the Orinoco, but he said he had promised his mother he wouldn't get married until he was promoted. As that was a long, long way off when he and Violet met, she cut off correspondence with him. No one knows the name of the baby that was placed in Violet's care as the Titanic went down. There were 128 children on board the ship, about half of whom survived. Even the gender of the child isn't known, and no one ever came forward claiming to be the child, though Jessop claimed she once had someone call her and tell her that he was that baby, even though up to that point she had not told that story to anyone. There is only one child recorded as being in lifeboat 16 with Violet, five-month-old Asad Alexander Thomas. However, he was reportedly in the care of Edwina Celia Trout, not Violet, after his uncle handed him to Edwina before the lifeboat launched. Newspapers claimed that the youngest child to survive the sinking was 11-month-old Hudson Trevor Allison, a first-class passenger. Obviously this was not the case, with several children younger than Hudson surviving. However, they were all second and third class passengers. Well, listeners, that concludes episode 153 of the Origins podcast. I do hope you enjoyed today's show, even though it's been a long, long time coming. I know, I'm sorry, I just haven't been able to get a quiet time when no one was in the house to record where I'm staying. The new house is in a lovely, quiet cul-de-sac, so it should be good for recording. And the name of the street is Gravillia Street which is very appropriate, being the botanical name for some beautiful Australian flowers. I thought that was quite good, and so did the other education officers at the Botanic Gardens when I told them the name of the street. Anyway, that's enough waffle, so this is Paul saying bye for now until next time, and hopefully I'll meet you all again, whether it be the Origins podcast or the Mysteries Abound podcast. Bye for now, everyone, and keep well.